What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this special episode from the archives. This is a golden oldie full of great evergreen advice for writers. It's a rerun, basically. Whilst we work on something very, very special. Or oh, very, very special indeed. We were so young and naive, weren't we, Mark? Oh, we were, but our guests, our guests were brimming with wisdom. So enjoy. And we'll be back next week with a brand spanking new episode of The Bestseller Experiment. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we look to write, publish and market a novel in just 52 exceptionally short weeks. My name's Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark Stay. Oh, Mr. Stay, it's been quite a couple of weeks, hasn't it? You've had quite a couple of weeks. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, we've obviously planned this podcast out so that we do weekly shows. And uh, I was meant to be going on a writing retreat and yeah. we had to do a couple of podcasts up front because we knew I'd be away for a week or so. Mm. And then completely out of left field, um, some family health issues hit. And as a result, my whole life changed over the last couple of weeks. And it's been a really fascinating ride in some ways because it's made me appreciate the importance of what we're trying to do as writers. And it's for everyone listening, you know, the importance of what we're trying to do here is just create something which is kind of bigger than us in some ways, the kind of words we put down on paper. Because when you experience health issues, whether it's with family members or friends, it really puts life into perspective. So yeah, it's been an interesting week. I was meant to be interviewing you, uh, not you, but interviewing, I guess, with you this uh, this week, um, which didn't happen. But it just shows you the benefits of this kind of tag team that we've got going here. So for everyone who's kind of writing a novel with somebody else, there are times like this where you really appreciate that other person. Well, you say that now, Mark. I was writing the novel on my own for about a week and a half. And all I can say is, I really hope you like robots. <laughs> Uh, I knew this would happen. I knew. I go away for one week. I turn my back for one week and suddenly these big metallic (laughs) objects appear in our story. I told you you right at the beginning, no robots. I can't help it. It's my default. Do you know what? I got to say, though, we talked about being parents. I actually did what I call the ultimate parental sacrifice yesterday. I took really, really? Two where's te- this going <laughs> I know I know my two teenage two of my teenage children and one of their friends I went and took them and actually saw Power Rangers at the cinema <laughs> your dad of the year I am dad of the year because you know what I, I I I've never got Power Rangers it was slightly after my kind of youth yeah we are uh, t- I, and you've got to tread carefully here because I got friends in their 30s about 10 years younger than us and for them, Power Rangers is like Star Wars is to me. It's so, you know, you, you've it? got it. Yeah, you get, they, they cherish this stuff. And, you know, oh. it's, uh, I, 
I listen to the Kermit and Mayer film podcast as well, you know, and people writing in saying, I know it's going to be crap, but it's Power Rangers and I went to see it and actually it was okay. You know, so you've got to, don't, don't mock, don't mock it. Well, no, you, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not mocking because actually the, the, reason, Power Rangers. The, the reason I went is our friend Brian Cranston is in it. And I thought, well, I'll go see it because I really like Brian Cranston, but our I'd friend. only ever seen it at a distance. <laughs> I've only ever seen at a distance the Power Ranger TV shows and they are just, all I ever hear as I walk past a TV when one of my kids is watching this is like, (laughs) and it's just like screaming and yelling and I don't get it. But I got to say, I actually enjoyed the movie and there was a, what what was I guess a rather large robot in it or a couple of rather large robots. So, you know, I was was watching it and I was thinking, uh, analyzing it as I do now because I'm completely messed up. I can't watch any movie without thinking about the hero's journey. I'm like, oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. Crossing yeah. the threshold from the ordinary world. I'm completely, it's like with music. Once you start writing music, you can never hear a piece of music. Just enjoy it. You're like, oh, that's an interesting bassless bass line I got. So what have you, you've destroyed me, Mark. I'm going it, to see yeah. Power Rangers and I'm analyzing the whole writer's journey and the hero's no, it, journey. It, it is true, actually. You do, once you see these patterns, you start noticing them and everything. And it does kind of, even trailers, I'll watch a trailer now and I'll go, I know exactly how that movie's going to play out, you know, yeah. uh, particularly if it's like a superhero movie or something because they do, you know, not every movie does the hero's journey, not every story is the hero's journey, but a lot of them do stick to that that kind of outline. And uh, it's it does kind it doesn't ruin films, but it makes you... Uh, you can it can take some of the joy out of some of the poorer movies out there. I think some of the ones well, where it's a thing. bit more. Our guest will talk about this. I love Pixar movies, and they do, you know, stick to that template. But they have a way of pulling the rug out of it and surprising you. And uh, Disney's got really good at this as well, uh, and telling these stories in a way that's still surprising. So you do start to see the beats. You know, you do start to see the joins a bit. I guess. But that's. I think that's a good sign in some ways because it means, like, as we go on this process of writing this novel together and learning from all these incredible authors and experts that we get on the show as we start to pick more and more up it's kind of a good benchmark that when you actually start to watch a film or or read a book the level of analysis you're actually trying to do in it is kind of proving that we're kind of learning bits as we go along yeah and in some ways it is like taking a blue pill and a red pill i always kind of use that matrix analogy of like once <laughs> you've taken you know once you've i can't never remember if it's the blue or the red pill but whichever one it is once you've taken it you can never <laughs> see the world in the same way again quite, and yeah. and it's kind of cool because i see story everywhere now i don't just see story in what we're writing i see story in you know the intro to a good course that someone's creating and how it's yeah. set up yeah. in a story in a, in a great advert on TV, a story in, in nonfiction. It, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's like story yeah. is like our life, isn't it, really? And it's so central to everything we do. And, and that's something I really appreciate about having gone deep in this experiment, which is, you know, um, yeah, talk about deep. It's like that pool they dive into in Power Rangers, if you've seen it. <laughs> they go very deep. <laughs> yeah, well, it goes anyway, to, uh, Kate Harrison was saying a couple of weeks ago about narrative being everywhere in our lives and it is in nonfiction, and it is how we understand the word it world even our memories you know you'll have an incident and it's that Rashomon thing of you know if you pick three people they'll all give you three different stories of the incident you know uh, mm. it's why police uh, uh, you know you can't always rely on eyewitness accounts because they will have taken the pieces of that puzzle of what they've seen and form it into some kind of narrative and it, it's weird how our minds that it's how our minds make sense of the world, I think. And uh, yeah. 
it's certainly the world doesn't make much sense to me at the moment. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> I saw talking of car accidents and police. I saw a car accident the other day, and the woman in front of me who also saw it was interviewed by the police, and she saw exactly the reverse thing of what I what I yeah, saw, and it's exactly you what you're saying. And I yeah. thought to myself, how could she not see that the car? Because I said to her, if you look at where the car spun and blah 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 blah, you can see that. It had to get hit from that side. She goes, oh gosh, you're absolutely right. And I thought, wow, isn't that amazing how she saw the complete opposite of what I did? <laughs> it's just That's like... exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. So in some ways, when we have to remember that, when people read our book, every single person that reads our book will interpret it and read it differently and that's oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's something you're definitely going to have to get used to because uh, particularly in a novel, you know, because in a film it's visual and it's on a screen, but even then you get people who get their own interpretation of the story. But, you know, characters, what they look like in a novel, uh, you know, you have a line in your head and it's said in a certain way, but the, the reader will put their own personality, their own stamp on it. And I think as long as you're ready to roll with that, and let that go and let the reader enjoy it in their own particular way, I think you'll be fine. But if you have a very, you know, fixed way of what your story is going to be like, then you're, you're going to be in for a shock, I think. Because people, <laughs> yeah. people bring themselves to the party and there's nothing you can do to control that. And I think you have to sit back and just let them go with it. Yeah, there's three parts to a book, not the beginning, middle and end. There's the author, the book and the reader. And, and each one of them creates the unique experience for that individual. I find it quite interesting when we created characters in our book, one of us has come up with a character usually initially. And as we start to kind of write about it, I think we probably see the characters slightly differently until we almost have a discussion say, but I, I see him short and fat. And they're like, no, he's tall and lanky. It's like, no, well, he can't it's, be. It's not just but, that. I mean, it, it was in one of your notes the other day. You said, I don't think he would do this. And I'm like, yes, he bloody would. <laughs> yeah. Not in my world, he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's you know, brilliant, so isn't it? Even we can't bloody I, agree I, on it. I fear for the I fear for the reader when there's two authors, the book and the reader, because if the two authors can't kind of agree on what's yeah. going on, then what chance has the reader got? But no, you, you, you wait till we get an editor involved. That's where it's oh, really going to get messed my up. Goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> goodness me. Well, let's dive into to today's chunky interview that we've got. Now, I miss this one. So, Mark did this incredible interview, and you might remember a few weeks ago if you're a fan of the podcast and you're binge listening like many of our listeners are right now you might remember liz fennick who talked about someone called julie cohen and often what happens in these types of scenarios is we get leads on people and lo and behold today's guest is julie cohen who is an exceptional author but more than just an author mark isn't she yeah, I mean, as Liz mentioned, she's was uh, teaching on the Cornerstone course, and she is someone who gets out there and, I mean, she's got a teaching background, but she does all sorts of conferences, uh, and she's just this amazing story mind. I don't want to say too much more, because um, you'll hear it in the interview, but she's absolutely spot on with some of her observations. And this is one of those interviews I think I'm going to be listening to again and again, because there's a lot in this. Excellent. Well, let's dive straight in. Let's go for it. Julie, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Mark. This is great. My pleasure. Now, I was looking at your bio. One thing really jumped at me. When you were starting out, you, you said that you discovered writing was a process of getting a good idea and then failing to execute it, which I thought was a brilliant. I was sitting there nodding, nodding, nodding. Would you care to elaborate on that? I think that writing is totally 
a process of failure. I think you, yeah, you do get a good idea and then you fail to execute it and then you fail to even fail to execute it. It's it's just always about failing and getting it wrong. And when I first started writing, I was, I don't know, no, you started writing from an early age, didn't you? Yeah. But I started really seriously writing when I had actually succeeded at a lot of stuff. So I had gone to the university I wanted to go. I, I did my degrees. I got the first job I applied for. Everything was going really well. And then I decided to write. And then I failed. I got rejected and my everything that I wrote was really bad. And I realized, I, I feel actually very fortunate that I was rejected so many times when I started out because I know now that I have to fail before I get it right. And the thing is, it generally doesn't get much easier either. I know when I've sat down to write like a, a screenplay after having a film made, sat down to it and it's just as hard. And you, you read it back and you're making mis all new mistakes, not the mistakes you made before necessarily, all new ones. And so they're thinking, I should know this. Does that ring true to you? Completely true. I make the same mistakes over and over again. <laughs> I totally do. Every time I still have the same, I still have the mistake, right? I have this mistake that I have been struggling with since I first started to write, which is that I need to write somebody walking into a room and then walking across the room and then choosing the chair they're going to sit in and then sitting in that chair and then how they sit in that chair and then how they pour a glass of water. I forget to leave the stuff you don't need out. Yeah. And I've been writing professionally for 12 years now. Still forget that. It's kind of a form of procrastination, isn't it? It's almost like warming up before doing an exercise because you write that stuff and you go, I don't need any of that, do I? That's all got to go. I don't know if it's warming up so much as really trying to, yeah, I guess it is warming up actually, because you're trying to inhabit the world of these characters yeah. and just get into them. And then you forget about yourself as a storyteller and somebody who's creating something quite highly structured and almost mannered. Does that make sense? To, to make it into fiction instead of real life. Now, your first book uh, was a Richard and Judy choice, Dear Thing. And you've got a novel coming out in the summer of 2017 from Orion called Together. It's my 21st. 21st. So, okay. So you've been around the block a few times then. I have. And I've, I've switched genres several times. I've just moved to a new publisher. I think there's a lot of pressure trying to do something new. And you, you're talking about failing. You get used to a certain level of failure and then the stakes are raised and you can fail even worse. So the fear gets even greater. And what scared you the most about this new book? About Together. It is the most technically challenging book I've ever written because it's told backwards. And it starts when the hero and heroine are in their 70s and 80s in 2016. And then it goes backwards through time in stages until 1962 when they meet when they're in their 20s. And so structuring the novel was very difficult and very challenging. And I had to plan it more than I'd ever planned anything else before. Because every no novel is a new sort of learning curve. You learn something new from writing it. And for this one, it was very much about how to structure a novel absolutely impeccably because I couldn't hint at what was happening later. I couldn't give secrets away. I had to make everything plausible going backwards as well as forwards. Each section, because it has sections going from 2016 to the 90s to the 70s to the 60s, and each section had to have its own narrative arc and drive um, and conflict, which is different from the others. Uh, it was an incredibly challenging novel to write. What came first? Was it the structural challenge? Did you think, I want to make this kind of novel that goes back in time? Or was there an idea where you thought, this is the only way I can tell this story? It was that. So this novel has a twist at the end, which is actually at the beginning. Uh, so there's a twist, <laughs> something that happens. It, this is how I... You really don't make life easy for yourself. Do you? It was so <laughs> difficult even to talk about this book. It has a secret that happens in... 
1962, that if it were at the beginning of the novel, it would affect the reader's perceptions in such a way that the rest of the book, they would read the book very differently. And so I wanted them, the reader, to get to know these characters before they understood the character's past and to uncover it bit by bit. So I actually got the story about the the idea about the twist um, several years ago and talked about it with my editor, Harriet. And she said, I don't think you can write that yet. Why don't you park it for a while and we'll come back to it. And I remember where I was when suddenly I realized, oh my God, I can write this book, but only if I read it backwards. It happens so rarely. I don't know about you, but I've written a lot of books and it's very rarely that you get a blinding explosion of insight. You can't predict it. And when it happens, it's incredible, but it doesn't happen very often. And it happened with that. So I knew I had to write it backwards. And then I thought, of course, how the heck do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> when, when your editor, when she said, you're not ready to write this book, did you think she was right? And um, what do you think she was thinking? What was it about this story without giving anything away, obviously? But why do you think you weren't ready for it? I just didn't have the idea in place yet. She okay. knew that the way I presented it to her was not right yet. And I'd already worked with her for two books by then. So I really trusted her instincts, which I still do. I think they're spot on. They're amazing. And we also think about story in a very similar way. I don't know how you feel, but you meet people who think about story in the same way as you, who you can almost use shorthand with because you you know what they expect at a certain point in a story and they know what, they're instinctive writers and they're analytical writers. And I'm an analytical writer, as you might've noticed. And so she understands that sort of analytical thing. So when she says something like that to me, I really listen to her. Speaking of analytical, one of the reasons we sought you out is we had the wonderful Liz Fennick on the show a few weeks ago and she'd been to a Cornerstones course and you were there teaching and she was extolling your virtues and actually since then a few other people have said you've got to get Julie on the show so you teach as well and funny enough talking about analyzing and story and understanding story I saw that you you teach story using examples from Pixar movies which is something I do with uh, children's groups oh, actually you know something like The Incredibles or, or Finding Nemo just has mm. the most perfect story structure how did you get into that you've got a teaching past haven't you I have I was a uh, secondary school teacher for 10 years until I left to become a full-time novelist. I really enjoy giving workshops to writers. So the Cornerstones courses don't happen anymore, but I met a lot of writers giving those courses. I run my own courses. I run a consultancy. I've taught for um, The Guardian and for Penguin Random House. People ask you to do things and then you start doing them. The Pixar thing is great. I'm going to do that this weekend down in Brighton. And when you sh can show people what a subplot looks like, for example, by looking at the two plots in Finding Nemo and deciding which one's the plot, which one's a subplot, how do they go together, um, looking at the parallels, it's such a good example because Pixar films are stripped down yeah. to their basics. And what they also do so well is that within their story world, they make the story as big as it can be. So even though these are stories about fish or toys... They are actually huge stories about human nature, and seeing how they do that is incredible. One of the things I use is um, the first four minutes of Wally -E to show how you can have an act one of a story um, without using any telling at all, yeah. absolutely 100% showing, and there are no words in that either, um, and how you can bring a viewer or a reader into a story just, in, just instantly by doing that. Very often with Pixar. 
I'll be watching it and I get kind of emotional because I think, oh, someone's doing it right. Someone's doing it so right. And there's a part of me thinking, I'll never be as good as this. <laughs> but not all their films are great. So, so that's a little bit reassuring that like Cars 2 was not as good as Cars no, 1. No, I think that's John Lester's pet project, isn't it? Uh, there's always exceptions to the rule. But certainly, you know, watching something like Inside Out, I was just overwhelmed by it. You know, I think it's incredible storytelling and, and not just that sort of changes the way you talk about childcare and emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm in awe of those guys, definitely. And I have to say, I was showing one of the things I do because I've got a thing about prologue. Now, I am not keen on prologues. I think most of the time they should go. They're written for the author rather than for the reader. Um, so I always show, when I do these workshops, I show the first six minutes of Up. Oh, God. It <laughs> destroys me every time. <laughs> which I believe is why that film won an Oscar, because the rest of the film is good, but not as not good as, as the first six minutes of Up. Yeah. And I was watching that the other day. I was going, oh, swear words. <laughs> That's my book. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> my book starts when the, when the hero is 80 and then goes back and you see their whole life together. I was like, oh, my God, I've written up. But that's okay. <laughs> Weirdly, uh, we have a – well, I have a playlist for the book that Mark and I are writing and I've got a couple of Pixar scores on there and Up is one of them. Mm-hmm. So it's become the soundtrack to our book as well, oddly enough. Now, when you do things like writing courses, what kind of author comes to you uh, – Are there authors who come too soon? Is there a particular time that you'd say is right for an author to go on one of one of these courses? I generally try to vet people and get people who have finished or nearly finished their first manuscript because I like to look at a novel in a whole structural way, which I think is difficult when you're in the middle of writing a first draft. Some authors can do that, but I think most authors need to write something really messy and have a bunch of clay before they can figure out how to mold it. So those are the authors that I tend to work with the most are the ones who have done that. Um, and to sort of come to me and say, I've written this draft, I don't know what to do with it. And I say, well, I'm sorry, darling, but you need to trash, you know, 60% of it and then we'll start again. <laughs> Which is, you know, sometimes that's great. That works incredibly well. I can name a couple of best-selling authors who I have said that to and they've done that and they have then gone on to the top 10 bestseller list. So the hard advice is is really good to get. And you can't, it's the things you can't see yourself. You know, when you're in the middle of clay, you don't see how it can ever make a shape. But somebody just walking into the room, they can say, oh, well, there's the head and there's the tail and you know whatever. So that's where I tend to get authors. And I, I think authors who just walk into the course and think maybe they want to write a novel, they don't have enough to work with yet, I don't think. I also tend to work with authors who have maybe self-published a few books and they want to make the leap into um, mainstream publishing. So it's all about sort of pushing people to the next level. Okay. We're getting to the stage. Uh, at the time of recording, we're about 50,000 words into our draft. We're going to be looking for an editor soon. Do you have any tips in, in what to look for in a good editor, what the writer-editor relationship should look like? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I've never hired an editor. I've just had my editors for my publishing. And I'll tell you what my good editor yes, looks like. She, as I said, we understand story structure in a very similar way. And so um, when I tell her things, she will then 
she looks at it analytically. We, we share a similar approach. I also think she's strategic. So she doesn't concentrate too much on the words, the individual words on the page. She's much more interested in looking at the structure and the characterization and that sort of thing. But I think if I were looking for an editor, I would look for somebody who had edited a book that I just loved and that I really admired mm-hmm. and look for somebody who had that sort of the same approach, um, whether they're going to just go in and go, this is making me feel great. Or if they're going to go in and I am going to look at this and think about it and make you dig this out. I always like an editor who challenges me. I really don't want to work with somebody who just says, this is great. I want somebody who says, uh, this is great, but you know, the praise sandwich is really important, obviously, you know. The praise sandwich. Oh, I love that. Tell, tell me about the praise sandwich. <laughs> this is a, so this is really good, but then I think you need to work on this, but this is really great. <laughs> it's much easier to deal with <laughs> than somebody coming in and just saying, oh, darling, this is a mess. <laughs> so do you relish getting notes? Talking to a lot of my writer friends, you discover there are stages to getting notes on your script or your book, and there tends to be anger, denial, mm-hmm. a kind of grief, and then mm-hmm. eventually a, a calm acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to go through them more quickly these days, but yeah. they're, they're still all there. Is that something you recognize? Definitely. Def- well, yes and no. It depends. It depends on the book because every book is different. It depends on the editor and it depends on the situation. So um, with the edits on this book, actually everything to me was like, yes, yes, yes. Every single thing that my editor said I thought was fantastic Um, because she really understood the book forwards and backwards and and it was amazing. I mean, just simple things like I want you to take the two pages at the beginning of your novel and put them at the end instead. You know, these very simple things that make a huge amount of difference. But I have had edits where I've felt very angry and the key is not to say anything to anybody. So you have to keep that grief and anger and denial and all that stuff to yourself and God, not on social media, right? Your significant life partner is fine. You can swear to them if they're used to it or your dog or whatever, but you cannot show any of that to your editor and you can't show any of it to anybody else because as you said, there's a process Mm -hmm. of dealing with it and your first response will not be your last response. So yeah, a good edit though is a treat it's it's like nothing else. It's it's almost like finding I don't know finding your life partner. It's not quite like that. It's like it's like meeting somebody who you just really have a good conversation with. When you get your document back and it's riddled with notes, what's your triage there? What do you start with? Is it the big stuff and you whittle down, or do you just fix the little things first and then think about the big ideas? What how do you approach that? Big stuff first. I always deal with the big stuff first because the big stuff is going to affect the little stuff. So always the big stuff. And have I talked about post-it notes yet? You mentioned post-it notes in your email conversation with us and you did threaten the mention of post-it notes. So do please tell us about post-it notes. I want to talk about post-it notes, Mark. So so my editing tool is post-it notes, essentially. And what I like to do is instead of actually tackling the manuscript itself, I tackle the scenes or the ideas of of the manuscript on post-it notes instead. And you say you're using Scrivener, so I know you can do that on Scrivener, I think. But I like to have little pieces of paper that I can move around because I think it's really difficult to tackle 100,000 words words, but it's very easy to tackle little pieces of paper. So if somebody said they had a structural problem with my book, for example, I would lay out the entire structure of the book on post-its, sort of scene by scene, not even scene by scene, story event by story event, and then move them around and shuffle them 
on post-its instead. So that's the sort of big overall stage that I would do first. I would do that way before I ever even tackled the manuscript. That's interesting because that's a very screenwritery Pixar thing to do, yeah. isn't it? Is is laying it out in beats and um, we have a big IKEA built-in wardrobe. Basically, the reason I got it is a big flat surface that yeah. I can put postcards on. So, yeah, so it's yeah. great. And you can you can literally step back and look at your story uh, yeah. in, in in a physical form, and then you start moving stuff about. So. Yep, color coded. I color coded according to scenes or characters or point of view. Or in this novel that I wrote backwards, it was all color coded to do with time periods. And I'm a great believer in them. (laughs) What was, um, again, without giving anything away, what was the most difficult point of the edit of your new book? Was there a point where you thought this chapter or scene that you kept coming back to again and again and again? With this one, for me, no. Because I planned this book out so much in detail because I had to plan everything. I didn't really have that. This was ironically, the hardest book to plan, but the easiest book to write because I'd planned it out so much in detail beforehand. And so I just sat down and wrote it after that. But with other books, there have been problem scenes that I've had to keep on coming back to. And I think you have to trust your instincts with that. And if you think that a scene is not working, that's because it's not. And if you don't know why it's not working and you keep on trying to fix it and it's still not working, that's because it's not. A lot of writers think that they can get away with stuff, but the hallmark of a good editor is that they don't let you get away with stuff. And I do a fiction consultancy and I I get manuscripts that are really good, but then I'll sort of write a report and I'll say, well, you know, I wasn't really sure about the first three chapters because they seem to be set in a different place than the rest of the book. Or I wasn't really sure about what was happening in the middle here because it didn't quite ring true to the character. And I would say probably 80% of the time, maybe more, the author then comes back to me and says, yeah, I didn't think that was going to... I thought I would maybe just push it through and maybe get away with it. (laughs) We have heard that before. We have... Authors have said... It might have been Liz, actually, said, listen to those niggles. Listen to those... uh, If there's something at the back of your head saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, and you kind of think, yeah, I can get away with that. Someone's going to spot it. Yeah. I guess that's that comes with experience as well, doesn't it? Any other sort of common mistakes or misconceptions that authors who come to the courses bring? Something they do again and again and again. I think a lot of authors begin in the wrong place. Lots of authors begin in the wrong place. They either begin way before the story starts or they begin after the story has started already. Or they begin in a way that they think they need something exciting there and then something exciting happens, but it has no relevance to the rest of the plot. So beginnings are really hard. And I do tend to deal with beginnings a lot in my course because that's what people just bring to me. But I would say that's that's very common, especially authors who write prologues. <laughs> Not that I'm prejudiced against. I've written a prologue or two in my time, but prologues tend to just delay the story and they just it just goes on. So that's the most common advice I give is can you just cut those 10,000 words? Cut to the chase, really. Yeah. A prologue there might be a certain pretentiousness about it. Maybe they've seen it in a big and important book once. What does a prologue serve? What does it do? And why do we need one? For authors, a prologue is how they get into the story. So it's writing themselves in. And I think you do need to write yourself into the story. It mm. takes it takes 10,000, 15,000 words before you know what the heck you're doing. But then you have to not forget once you finish the whole book that you've taken those 10, 15,000 words to write yourself in. And therefore, those 10, 15,000 words might not be the right ones because you've got to the ending and your whole idea of everything has changed. So 
there tends to be like in the beginning of a book, there tends to be a lot of telling instead of showing a lot of figuring out on the page what these characters are and what their backstory was and just giving it to the reader in big lumps. So that's what prologues tend to be quite often. A good prologue can be great, but I think a prologue should generally be written last or at least edited last after you finish the whole thing. Mm-hmm. My author friends completely argue with me on over this one. They say, no, a good prologue, you need a good prologue. Great. Because readers do like prologues. I think yeah. readers like them a lot. Okay. You said something that interested me as well, which is when people are working out the character, they'll put great big globs of exposition or description of character, which, again, this is something I'm learning, should be held back and teased for later. Is that quite a common kind of rookie mistake is you spur everything out straight away? It's not a rookie mistake, though. It's a first draft mistake right. So I, I, because I do it. So I'm, I've just written 12,000 words in my next book, and a lot of that is just figuring out the character on the page. Yeah. I mean, I was writing yesterday, and my character wanted to tell me something that happened to her when she was seven years old. And I'm sure it probably wasn't relevant, but she wanted to tell me that. So I've written it down. It's on the page. It'll get cut. Or maybe it'll get moved. Or maybe maybe the reader doesn't need to know that. I just needed to know that. Um, because a book is like an iceberg, right? So the reader sees the tip. But actually what the author knows is huge. And that's another thing, actually, with newer authors is I'll ask them questions and they'll say, well, I don't know. And I'm like, right. well... You need to know why this happened. Yeah. You know, you can't just write it in there because it seemed like a good thing to happen at the time. We, you know, you've got the swan on the surface, iceberg swan, you know, mixed, <laughs> mixed metaphors because I'm a writer, right? <laughs> but, but there's a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface that the reader doesn't need to see, but you as an author need to know. And is that something you discover as part of the process, as part of rewriting, or are you the kind of author who does a character outline before you start writing? Yeah, both. Okay. <laughs> Both. Again, it depends on the book. With this latest book, I have this book, which is a sort of flaky new age book called The Wisdom of Enneagrams. It's, um, it's a new age personality type book. And it gives you a little quiz at the beginning and you take it as your character. And then they tell you what personality, t- there are nine personality types and then subtypes. And it tells you what this person is. And it's really useful because it tells you the type of background this character tends to have, how they are when they're unhealthy, how they are when they're very healthy, you know, the sort of conflicts they tend to have in their life. And it's a great, it's a great tool for fiction writers. So I did that with this book that I'm writing now because I have two heroines and I wanted to know how they were different. So I took the quiz and went through and did all that. That sort of informs then everything that they do. But then sometimes they do stuff that doesn't fit that. (laughs) So there's a certain point where you just have to chuck all of that and then just go with what they tell you. Are you an author where you find that characters surprise you? You talked about the girl telling you about the story when she was seven years old. Mm -hmm. Is that something you allow room for and you're ready to sort of roll the punches in that case? They have to surprise you, I think. I think that's one of the joys of being a writer is when they suddenly do something that you're not expecting at all. And yet you realize you've been subconsciously building for the entire mm. time. You look back, has that happened to you? You yeah, write it, something. It has, it has. It's happening right now. It's <laughs> so great when that happens. I wrote this book once where I, I had to have a big climactic event in the ending and I had no idea what it was, right? And so I was like, right, I have no idea what this is. It has to be big. I'm going to make a list of everything I can think of, you know, from aliens landing to, you know, a, a cat coming in or, you know, somebody saying that they're somebody's long lost mother or whatever. So I made a big long list of, you know, 20 things that could happen. And usually when you do that, about number 12 is when the real solution comes in. I was like, oh my God, it's got to be this. So I picked that out. And then I, 
oh my God, but I've been setting that up all the way through and I didn't even know. Yeah, yeah. I literally had the object that would make that happen come into the story in chapter three. Similarly, you'll have an outline, but you're not going to stick to it very strictly. You, you'll head towards an ending, but be ready to change that ending completely, perhaps. If you have to. Yeah, if you have to. Not with this book together, but with the book before that falling, the ending was supposed to be completely different than how it turned out. Do you get blocked at all? And if you do, how do you cope with that? That's a really hard question because I used to believe that writer's block didn't exist. I always thought that it was really caused by the fear. And I'd say capital T, capital F, the yeah. fear, which is part of what every writer has to deal with, the fear. And I thought writer's block was generally the fear just getting over with you. And you just have to learn how to deal with the fear and then move on. And sometimes it's caused by not having the right idea yet. So you have a problem, but you can't work out how to solve it. And so once you've solved the problem, you can move on. This year, I had a type of writer's block, which was caused by nothing to do with my own stories and everything to do with the publishing industry. And so um, it was really out of my control. And so I found it very difficult to write anything. I was writing like crazy. I think this past year, I've written easily 150,000 words. But nothing publishable whatsoever. Oh, really? <laughs> I've just been writing for fun because I needed to keep in the in my hand in it because I knew that if I stopped writing, that would just be the end. It's easy when you sit down every day to get something down, even if it's rubbish, but it's really hard once you get out of the habit of doing it to get back into the habit. So I've been doing that. So do I believe that writers, it's the fear, really. I think it, it's the fear in different aspects and you need to learn how to overcome that somehow. And very often is it a fear of getting it wrong, a fear of not being able to do it right. I mean, like you said, you start out by failing and mm -hmm. failing less and less, I guess. And it's just accepting that, isn't it? I don't even know if you fail less and less, you know, Mark. <laughs> I think you fail all the time. I think it's an exercise in failure. And some, sometimes the failure that's your own is sometimes a little bit easier to deal with. Okay, so I get to, I'll call it the suckage point. So I get to the suckage point in all of my books where I think that I am writing just the worst steaming pile of crap that anybody has ever got to. It's about where you are, about 50,000 words in. So steaming pile of crap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I call it the suckage point. And that is a horrible, horrible feeling. Mm. But I've been through that enough now that I know that actually you do get over that mm. eventually. It's hard to remember that, but I do. The fear that's harder to overcome is the fear that has nothing to do with you. So the fear that has to do with readers and reviewers and publishers to do with, you know, all those two-star reviews on Amazon or the fact that Smith's isn't going to take your book or, you know, that you've written the best book of your entire career and nobody's going to read it. This sort of fear that gets you at, you know, two or three in the morning. And that's a harder fear even to deal with than your own failure. Well, those are things that you have no control over yeah. whatsoever as well. I know exactly that feeling, you know, but you have to put it to one side, I guess. You have to ignore yeah. it. And the thing is the fear about your own failure you can overcome by working harder and not failing and finding the right solution and going for it. But the fear of failing because of something out of your control is, I think, more crippling because you can do nothing about that. All you can do is just ignore it and move on. Yeah. Now, you spoke of writing 150,000 words in a year. What are you going to do with those? I mean, you said together your new book, the idea had been kind of I guess, percolating for a long time. Do you think there's anything in those 150,000 words you might come back to in a couple of years that could be a new book? Yeah, I just really, because I'm writing a new book now, properly writing a new book, sitting down every day and writing it properly. And I thought it was a new idea that I'd had. 
But when I looked at it and I started describing it to my friend, she said, oh, that's the idea you had two years ago that you wrote sort of three aborted beginnings for. (laughs) Um, But it's shifted and changed and mutated. So it's sort of the same emotional idea, but a different plot. So I think that no writing is ever wasted. Um, I think you can write stuff that'll never get published, but you'll learn something from it, either about ideas or technique, or it will give you a feeling that you will then take on to do something else. So I think every piece of writing is worthwhile. You talked about an emotional idea there and feelings. Is that sometimes how you start out? Do you think, I want people to read this and feel exalted or inspired or sad? Or is that is that what drives you? Often, yeah, because I come up with a theme for every book. As I say, I'm very analytical. So, so I come up with the um, idea, but then I also think of maybe a one-word theme. So um, the theme of Together is love, but it's not quite love. I can't really tell you what the theme is because it's got a twist ending. But the theme of my book before with Falling was falling. And so that sort of theme or that emotion then informs everything that happens in the novel. And I put it up again on a post-it <laughs> where I can see it every day. And that leads me to you know, choose subplots and to choose um, locations and to choose story events and characters and even characters' names as well. I think that's fascinating because I've had this where you're writing something and you forget where you're writing in the first place and you go off theme and it is where you start making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think having that pinned to a wall or because uh, John Wright and I who write scripts together we do a statement of intent you know the conversation that sparked off our idea and we will return to it and particularly when you're doing film because at least when you're writing a novel you have one editor coming back to you with film you get all sorts of people chipping in with their ideas and very often they don't know what sparked the idea they don't Mm -hmm. get the theme or whatever so keeping on track like that is is really important i really like the idea of pinning it to a wall so you can see it every day excellent now, if people want to find you online, and I'm, I'm looking here that there's an amazing website. It's julie-cohen.com. You've got all sorts of blog posts about character arts, point of view, post-it plotting. There you go. <laughs> Writer's block. And you're still doing various courses and teaching here and there. Where, where might people be able to find you in the next year or so? I'm teaching a week-long guided writing retreat in at Chez Castillon, France, in June and July this year. Oh, nice. oh my God, it's so nice. There's a swimming <laughs> pool. There's a cafe across the street. There's loads of wine. It is amazing. And I'm teaching another one for a week, the end of September, in Devon at a place called Retreats for You. And that's great. So I work with writers one-on-one in the morning, and we talk through the books really intensely. In the afternoon, everybody goes away and writes. And then in the evening, we come back together for some wine and we talk through what we've done. It is fantastic. Those are the main things I'm doing, I think, in the next year, although I pop up at various writing events. Um, I'm always at the Festival of Writing in York, um, where I usually give that Pixar Films workshop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've managed to get half an hour of gold from Julie. And so if you want to go on those courses and get even more, do track her down. Thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Mark. That was really fun. Thank you. Oh, I really enjoyed listening to that interview, Mark. Julie is another person who just, I really, when I listen to what she says, I just really connect with everything that she talks about because there's so much depth to what she's, she, you know, you can tell she, she's really gone, she's really gone deep and she's really explored a lot of these things. One of the standout things for me was her analogy of the book being like an iceberg. I absolutely love that. The reader Mm. sees the tip 
but what the author knows is huge. Yeah. Have you, have you ever yeah. seen that image on the internet of that? It's a classic. Oh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know the one. Yeah. And yeah. it does. Giant, giant iceberg. It's yeah, yeah. giant iceberg. And, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before the interview about actually, you know, the reader puts their bid into the story. But one of the biggest challenges as the writer is how we deal with what we already know. And we also forget the reader doesn't know a lot of that stuff yet. Mm. I mean, how, what, what did that mean to you when she said that about the iceberg? Well, it's it's also about not showing your work as well. It's it's um, it's allowing the reader to add two plus two and come up with four themselves. And it's something that certainly when you're starting out, find it very hard to do. Well, as she said, actually, it's it's not just a rookie writer thing. It's something we all do because we all are very anxious that the idea of our story gets across correctly, and mm. we get so anxious we spell it out for the reader. And then when you read it back, you just think, oh, God, this is just a load of exposition or this is all showing and not telling. You know, there's a classic thing of show, don't tell. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, it's, it is very much a first draft problem. And it's something I think, you know, you need to have your radar ready for uh, when you're rewriting to identify those moments and then step back and say, how can I show this and not tell us? How, how can I... Instead of just info dumping in this one scene, how can I drip feed this idea so that the reader accumulates this information and, and is engaged in the story? And it's really difficult to uh, to make that work. But, you know, that's what rewrites are for, I guess. Yeah. And it's a constant challenge, though, isn't it? Because, again, I use music often as an analogy. I always say to people when I coach them in music that you can never hear your track. When you finish a track, you can never hear it for the first time you know, because you, you've constructed it bit by bit. And it's the same for an author. An author can never read their book for the first time, you know, with this idea of almost like wiping yes. their memory and not knowing what's coming. And so how as authors do we even judge the mind of the fresh reader um, mm -hmm. in terms of not letting what we already know influence what's happening yeah. in the story? That is an absolute, uh, messes with your mind when you try and think about it. But it's a biggie, and I think it's quite a big skill that authors need to develop. It's something I'm definitely trying to learn as we go through our book. Well, it's, it's also something that is part of the editorial process, and a lot of first-time authors won't have been through that process. So the urge is, the instinct is to get everything down and, and, and hope that it's plain and upfront. Whereas I think a good editor will say, you know, there's less is more. Make these scenes work harder, but don't be so upfront with your exposition. And it's that thing that Julie said right at the beginning, which is it's all about failing before you get it right. It's one of the, the problems with any creative endeavor is you fail and fail and fail and fail. And then eventually you get close to something that you think might be perfection. I mean, you, you ever listen to interviews of Woody Allen, particularly Woody's golden era from the late 70s to the sort of the late 80s where he made these fantastic films but when he looks at them he sees them as a series of failures they they weren't the films he set out to make uh there's the famous story about annie hall which is you know there was a whole murder mystery section to that film that i think he shot and then cut which that he then later made into another film you know he he felt it was it was not the movie he wanted to make and yet it's considered an an absolute classic an oscar winning movie very often the creator is the last person to realize what they've got yeah you know? i often say that i often say that you know the creator of the piece of work whether it's a piece of music a book or a film or whatever is probably the least able to judge whether something is actually like 
going to be really successful or not. It's almost like we have to give that up. And actually, there was a whole section that, that I found really fascinating that Julia was talking about, which is where she talked about this idea of the, the things you can't control. She was talking specifically about the fears you can't control, which are really great. Yes. But it's also about this idea. Like, so we, we kind of come into this podcast saying, yeah, we want to get a bestseller. But can we, like, to what extent can we actually control that? How much mm. is actually something that we can do through, say, you know, the marketing of the book and writing a good story, obviously. And how, what percentage, what portion of that is going to be what the, you know, the audience nerds, you decide. It's a bit like these kind of reality TV yeah. shows where they have to vote. And I don't know where that percentage is. I don't know whether we can influence 80% of whether we get to a bestseller. I mean, if we had a, you know, a million dollars and we spent that on massive billboards, that would probably help. But realistically, for most authors, what what yeah. is that kind of split? Like how much can you actually... I know. I mean, it's, it I've, I've seen it time and time again in traditional publishing where we all decide that we love a particular book and we're going to make this our focus and we're going to make this book a bestseller. And we put strategies in place uh, yeah. as we have done. You know, we, we are building our audience with the podcast there. We're learning from the authors and editors and people we've had come on here. There are things that we're doing to help ensure that our book has a level of success but that next step up to bestsellerdom, or at least becoming some kind of you know uh, renowned book, at, at least that's completely out of your hands. That relies on word of mouth, you know, which you cannot buy. I mean, there are things that you can put it up on your book on Goodreads or NetGalley or places where where people will talk about your book pre-publication or whatever, or you can do all you can to sort of get reviews on Amazon or whatever site you're selling your book on. But you can't guarantee those are going to be positive reviews. And it, in fact, it can and has backfired terribly because if you've got publication day and you've got a series of one and two star reviews saying, well, I was very disappointed with this book, that's it. Your, your ship yeah, is sunk. You know? It's not so a great it's, start, um, is it? It's in the hands of the public who, you know, voted for Brexit, voted for Trump. Um, <laughs> they're not on good form at the moment, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for all those people that did vote for Brexit and for Trump, <laughs> we'd love you to still buy our books. Yeah, <laughs> but no, it's, it's important. I think it's important to remember. I do think it's important to remember that it's easy. It's easy for somebody looking at and hearing this conversation to say, you know, if it's all out there, if it's all in the public's decision, if it's in the public vote, then we don't really have to, you know, I just put it out there and see what happens. I do think that to give a book any chance of having any kind of readership, there is a certain level of, you know, basic work that has to be done to to make sure that people A, know it exists and, and B, push it after it's been released. A lot of people, I think they put their books up bit like when they used to kind of, I used to run a team of web builders, web, website builders, and, and many companies thought you just create a website and they shall come. And it just <laughs> oh, doesn't God, happen. Yeah, I yeah, say it's yeah. a bit like setting up a drink stand in the, in the desert. Yeah, great idea. And if someone comes along, you're probably going to have a customer, but you're in the middle of a frigging desert. So what are the chances of meeting anyone? So I, I think there's this kind of idea that we have to go for it and push as hard as we can. Yeah. when the book is pre-launch and obviously post-launch, which is just as important. But no, there is this point where you have to let go of the outcome. Because we're sitting here right now talking about this. We're almost, we're just over halfway through the year. We have no idea. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast beyond 
point where we've actually published the book, you obviously are kind of know, might even know the story. I mean, go onto Amazon and find our book and tell us what happened. But ultimately, <laughs> we could be sitting on a book that sells 10 copies, or it could have gone huge or viral. And we, we don't know. And I think that's part no. of the excitement. Because if we knew it, it'd be kind of boring. It's a bit like it's a bit like knowing the ending to the film before you, you start. You call it excitement. It. <laughs> well, it's, I guess there's other words for it, aren't there? But I know. No, yeah, it's, it's, I see. It's looking fun. at your nails that have slightly disappeared there. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I put a thing on Facebook because Glancefest is coming around again, and Glancefest is coming in November this year. And, for and people that don't know what Glancefest is, what, what it's Glance is a science fiction imprint uh, that published my book Robot Overlords, and they publish people like Joe Abercrombie and Joanne Harris, and the it's um, it's a festival and there's a big writer's element to it as well. And I've, I've put it on our Twitter and I've put it on our Facebook page. You know, you can sign up for when the tickets go on sale. Galantzfest this year is in November. And it occurred to me, Galantzfest will be out after our book has been published. I'll know by Galantzfest whether or not this has worked or not. You know? You'll know whether you'll, be, whether you'll actually be showing up there or trying to hide oh. something. <laughs> Oh, there's that bloke who did the podcast. Oh, are you going to Galantzfest? I don't know. I might be busy. I might be busy. I might have to just check my diary. Ask me a few days before. Ask me at the beginning of November. I know. Well, no, this is the other thing, though. It's the sort of thing. I know that a lot of stuff to do with bestsellers is about kind of trying to push as many sales in the shortest period of time. I get that. But I also think that, you know, from an independent artist perspective, music, authorship, whichever. It is about the long run. It's about the long tail. It's not about saying, okay, we put it out there and if nothing happens in a week, then it's a failure. Sometimes it can take a bit of time for momentum to build. I mean, I'd like to think that we get a good start, but come November, you'll have all kinds of great excuses that we can dream up about. Oh yeah, yeah. We're just kind of like getting things going and we're seeing sales are doubling every week. Like last week, it went from two to four, you know, so we'll get you some good lines that you can drop in. Well, I mean, we've we've heard this again and again and again from Shannon Mayer, from Mark Dawson, from all these publishers who have taken, you know, five, six, 10, 12 years to get to a point where they can give up the day job and write for a living. Uh, and we're doing a one-off, you know, but they have series and they work very hard at this. And it's, you know, ours is an experiment, you know, that we're, we're doing this one book and we're going to learn a lot from that and then we're going to go on and write other stuff. Now, it's... Um, it's it's clear to me that I think if you want a career, you're gonna you're gonna be writing more than one book. You know, I mean, yeah, if, if it's not it's not gonna happen overnight. Uh, I mean, we're doing everything we can to set ourselves up for a success, but it is just one book. And looking ahead, you and I, either together or on our own or whatever, we'll be writing more books. And I think further down the line, ten years from now, we'll look back and and then we'll know. You know, well, yeah. we know if, if this was a pivotal turning point in our careers or or if it was the end of the line. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I love the fact, I just, I just, I just love it. I just love the fact that we don't know. And um, so for everyone listening, please put us out of our misery and buy the book if, if it's out already, like if, if it's past October 2017. Please go or check if, it out. We'd be very if happy. You're a, if, you're, if you're a time traveler, come back and tell us and put us out of our misery. Oh, that would be good. Wouldn't be good. One other, one other thing that uh, Julie said that that I loved, um, and it's kind of relevant to where we're at in the story in our story right now in Bob book. Um, she talked about the post-it notes, and yeah. I love. I mean, I've 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 learned a lot about that kind of structure and how you can use post-it notes. And there's always this kind of combination of 
do you use something, a program that can do it? Or do you use a big wall like you talked about your wardrobe? And I think there's a place for both of them, actually, because um, I love what you can do in Scrivener with on the cork board. You can basically have the equivalent of virtual. If, if you haven't used Scrivener, you can have virtual postcards. You can drag and move things around. It's really great. You can add in kind of mini synopsis for each card. But I also use this little program they've got called Scapple, which is a thing that integrates with Scrivener and you can import one into the other, which is great. But it's more of a brainstorming tool for getting things down. And I like that. But saying that, I also like to start the process off and maybe have the big picture, as it were, up on the wall or the wardrobe um, so that there's just something tactile and real about having the physical post-it notes to move around. And I wonder how many people actually have used that technique, whether it's kind of a popular technique. Oh, I think I think it is very popular, and there is something really nice about it being tangible. You know, I think Kate Harrison said this a couple of weeks ago. Just that thing of getting cards out and scribbling on them, and 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 you see this in uh, in TV writers' rooms all the time. Uh, Mark Huckabee and Nick Osler, who are on the show uh, uh, about ten episodes ago now, um, they're working on a Moomins TV show. Moomins, and the Moomins, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I remember know. the Moomins. Yeah, yeah, kids' TV show, right? Exactly, and they're working on that. And every now and then, they'll put photos up on their Twitter feeds, uh, and the walls are covered in post-it notes. And that's where you have a writer's room, and you've got all writers coming together. And at a glance, you can see what that episode is about. Now, you and I, because there's distance between us, something like Scrivener is is perfect for that because it's you know a digital resource that you know. we can just dial into it any time. Certainly when I write on my own, I do have the post-its on the wall or the postcards on the wall that I like to move about. And it is, it is fun. It, it, it's, it's, it is a kind of procrastination. So don't tell Ben Aronovich uh, <laughs> where you move things about and you, you're playing with scissors and glue almost, you know, but um, it does help just, it just getting you off the screen, eyes off the screen. I think and, that's, and yeah, on I your think feet that's as thing. well. I think you're right. I think there's actually one of the biggest challenges we have as authors, and everyone listening probably appreciates this, is that if you do write on a computer, which probably is like 99% of us, uh, there is this challenge that we are just too technologically engaged. And sometimes we need to look away from the screen and, and get a different perspective. Um, in coaching, it's quite interesting. When someone's got a problem, you say, right, stand up and turn the other way. And it actually works, like the physical movement of switching direction. And I think having that kind of wall where you've got your, your post-its. And I think Michael Conley, actually, when our interview with him back in episode blah, 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 five or yeah. six or seven, um, he said that when he started to work on the TV show uh, that was on yeah. Amazon yes. Prime. It's on of, Amazon Prime, my, yeah, the Bosch, Bosch TV right? show. Yeah. 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 So yeah. He, he, he started to learn about that because he was in with script writers and he started to then apply what he learned into his book writing process. So if, if someone like Michael can do it after selling 80 million books, I think there's, there's always, you know, it shows you there's always something new that you can learn. And again, so. again, if you, um, going back to Pixar and Julie's examples of Pixar, if you look at the making ofs on the DVDs uh, or the Blu-rays, um, you'll see that they do that. But they also do it with illustrations as well. They do little stick man sketches. Yes. So you get a visual mosaic of what your story is about, which I, I've, you know, I don't think anyone's done that with a novel, perhaps, because it's not a visual medium. But it'd be interesting to see, here if anyone any, anyone works like that, you know? So yeah. it's... Um, it can well, also, be... you start, when you watch those extras as well, you appreciate just how much, how many man hours have gone oh, yeah. into the creation of that one film. I mean, in some ways, the reason why they're usually such good films is they have just 
exhausted. I think you mentioned it, Mark, earlier, like these, all these different routes of, you know, trying every different option out until they found the sweet, sweet spot to guide them through from the start to the end of the book. Now, or film in that case. So, I, I mean, for most authors to go to that level would require, you'd never compete, would you? Because you'd need a team of, I mean, Pixar yeah. probably have, I don't know how many brains go into their scripts and their process. It must be absolutely incredible. But it's to learn the, to learn from how they do things, I think, is so, so valuable. And even absolutely. just watching those extras is probably a valuable thing for every author to look and at. And there is, there is a thing online, and we'll put a link uh, in the Vault of Gold, and we'll put it online as well. It's aimed at kids, but there is a thing at the moment called the Pixar our academy which is completely free where they have little videos talking about storytelling it is kind of storytelling 101 aimed at young children but to be honest i'm watching it going oh yeah Oh, you know, okay. the, the dummy little things about how, how to start a character, how yeah. to outline. Well, I need to need to learn how to outline, <clears throat> <laughs> but it's all there. It's all there, and it's uh, when Pixar says anything, I will sit up and listen. Well, absolutely. And those books, the Dummies Guide books, um, the Idiots Guides books, are one of the top selling series ever. And I think people actually don't mind that things are potentially in quotes dumbed down. Um, I think you can learn. It forces actually the narrator of whatever's being taught to really get down to basics. And that's where we learn. It's often the fluff around the edges in adult yeah. kind of coaching and teaching that just, just fills us up and, and means that we, we don't really get the point. So the other thing um, that I wrote down notes wise from Julie, I loved, I mean, you talked about the kind of this idea of getting something back from the editor and having to go through this process there's this emotional roller coaster. You talked about anger, denial, grief, and acceptance. Yeah. Do, you, do you know where that comes from? Have you, have you come across the actual? Because there is actually a, um, uh, there was a, an author who's now unfortunately passed away called Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kubler Ross. And she wrote a book called On Death and Dying. And those right. four stages that you mentioned are actually four of the five stages that she identified as, as the stages of grief. <laughs> right? Really? Did you, it was really interesting <laughs> no, when you said it. And you said exactly, it's anger, denial, and then you said grief. She calls grief it Grief and then acceptance. Yeah. And then acceptance. Yeah. But she sometimes called yeah. grief depression. Or, but the other bit, there's a third, there's a third stage which comes okay. between denial and grief, and it's called bargaining. Right. right. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, it goes anger, denial, bargaining. It's like, but yeah. you know, and then you, you try and, and then grief and then acceptance. And what's fascinating about those stages is they are the five stages that someone goes through, not necessarily in a se- sequential order. Sometimes you go into stage two or three and then you jump back to, you know, you go back, go into bargaining and you go back to denial again and then you jump to grief. But eventually, if someone goes through those five stages, that is what we all experience when somebody close to us dies. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I my fantasy novel got a rejection today, and oh. when when you get rejected, you go through those stages as well, as well oh, as when you, so you get a you know email from my agent saying, "Oh, it got rejected today," and he said, "Do you want to see what they said?" Uh, I said, "You know," I said, "Oh yeah, I'm a big boy. You know, send it over." So you know, you get that. You see that someone hasn't got your book, you know, and they've said why. And the bargaining thing, which I don't do anymore because you could, I could have gone back to my agent and said, oh, they've completely misunderstood it. This is this and that is that and blah, blah. But I've realized now that's completely futile. There's no point. It's just they didn't get it. That's fine. I'll move on. Yeah. Um, But I did, I go through those stages much more quickly now. Um, When I started out, I would seethe for about a week and think, oh, revenge on world, everyone must die. Yeah. Uh, and then, then you know, eventually two weeks later, you're, with, now it's in about half an hour. 
<laughs> that's brilliant. But it's just well, because it's, I've had so many of them. You develop, like Sid, we talked about developing do. calluses. Calluses, thing, thick, yeah, thick exactly. Skin. You know, you just yeah, have guitar to, players' fingers comes, right? comes of experience, I guess. And yeah. I think it's really important that we're talking about this because you know we you know we often talk about the craft of writing and marketing, mm. but there's the whole emotional journey that we go through, and it's very much like I mean I love this kind of stuff because it's what I coach all the time. But it's important for people to recognise that there is a emotional journey which people have kind of mapped and you know it's different for everyone but generally you can put people into these phases and if you understand it if you know where you're at and like you said you now know that you can move through it quickly the fact you can even measure that is fantastic because otherwise um people can just get wrapped up or lost and think oh i'm depressed because my book's not so i mean you know my book's not not being accepted i'm now officially depressed and i'm a crap yeah. writer and it's never going to happen to me but you think no it's just a phase and just like julie said how when she goes through the writing process she gets to was it fifty thousand words which is a bit ominous because yeah, yeah. that's roughly where we are um, <laughs> um, that that she hits that kind of i think she calls it the suckage point and it's the, <laughs> so which i loved and and it's so interesting to hear like someone who's actually written 21 books says i still still fall into that kind of stage of thinking oh this yeah. is awful and we hear we hear that on twitter accounts of all the authors yeah. we've interviewed today we keep seeing them hitting that phrase again and saying oh god uh, you know the, the hot twenty thousand or the fifty thousand. it's it's very reassuring in its way and it's good to see other is. authors going through it and you know i mean there was like i say there was a 10 minute period this afternoon where i thought i'm the worst writer in the world i why am i doing this why am i putting myself through this but you get through it you just think ah screw it onwards upwards you know so yeah. uh well, yeah. then there's always people like J.K. Rowling to remind us that there are probably yes. in the world, maybe even listening to this podcast, and I apologize for bringing it up, but if you are one of those editors that had her book, <laughs> her very first book, on, on your desk for a year and didn't, and didn't sign it, you know, there's always that that we can use to say failure is a part of the road to success ultimately. And, you know, it's, it's like you say, you once called it a badge of honor, I think, or a medal of honor. You've got to, you've got to go through it and say, I've got the badge. And, and no one is immune. There is no, not one single author out in this world living today that has not experienced failure in order to get to success. And I think we all have to remember that. So I say, bring on the failure. Bring it yeah. on. Yeah. Can't wait and to get some editor's notes back. Follow up with a, with a praise sandwich as well. Praise sandwich. Yeah. 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 As opposed to the other kind of sandwich. That's a, that's again, another technique. That, that's another technique that's used, um, in a lot of evaluations, uh, I've, uh, the sandwich technique, as they call it in coaching, is mm. that you have something at the beginning which is good. You have the, the the bit you need to really get to, the criticism or whatever you call it, in the middle, and then you finish again with praise. And yeah. it actually works great with kids as well. I've tried to apply that. Yeah, when, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just true. All this kind of stuff. So, um, And we have to be aware as authors about when we read other authors' works, how we – because people – respect the fact that we're trying to write a book and respect our opinion and it's good to try and remember that yeah. they're all going through the same emotional journey that we are as well definitely, so. definitely. excellent so you had a interesting tweet i believe this week mark well it's it was on it was instagram. Uh, instagram actually instagram you've got a you've got a voice fan you've got a fan girl <laughs> uh, this is uh kelly Byrne on instagram thinks hello, you kelly. sound hello kelly um thinks you sound like 
Carrie Elwes in The Princess Bride, which is one of my favorite films. I could quote from that film all day. Uh, I once saw Wallace Shawn outside the National Theatre and somehow I didn't rush up to him and go, inconceivable. I, I controlled myself. Um, but, yeah, she thinks you sound like Carrie Elwes. Uh, oh and I was gosh. kind of – I was – kind of hurt by this because you know there's no i i if any if i sound like anyone it's probably like michael kane because my family come from the same part Actually, of london you know, now you say that now you say that that's that, i well, think we should I, have a reader's poll or listener's poll when i did when i was acting when i was younger because when you act you slow your voice down and you end up sounding a bit like michael bloody kane <laughs> so i used to get told off for sounding like him all the bloody time <laughs> But, you know, I'm, Can I ask I'm you, Mark, could you do the rest of this podcast <laughs> in the accent? It'd be so good. Oh, yes. Anyway, oh, she uh, she has a request, which is um, she wants you to say the famous line from The Princess Bride in your best Carrie Elwes voice. Well, this is quite funny, actually, because one of my... Firstly, I, I find this brilliant. Thank you so much for saying <laughs> great but i believe i believe the line is and i'll try it in my best in my just best voice as you wish oh i got chills did that, did that, <laughs> see i have no idea i've got to say i've seen the movie once but i'm not one of these rabid fans <gasps> who's watched it my wife my wife exactly <laughs> my wife on the other hand it's like her well like top three films of all time yeah but, i mean uh, but my, my kids will suddenly if, if we're talking about someone's wedding my kids will suddenly start going marriage you know we'll just start <laughs> quoting it yeah it's, it's i've heard that one many times oh, and it's, it's written by william goldman one of the finest screenwriters ever and his books if you want to be a writer read his books because they are amazing on the craft of writing oh, just thought i'd drop that in interesting so, yeah yeah. That's brilliant. So I'm I'm going to put it out there because this has maybe started a little little trend that we can do here. What people I want you of the world tell me who Mark sounds like. Who do you think Mark sounds like? We'll see if we can get some because I want to get you back now and see if we can get you quoting some stuff as well beyond That's Michael Caine, which which is very good by the way. It's a good accent. There. I like. Thank you. Excellent stuff. <laughs> um, God, also, this, this podcast also, is all over the shop today, isn't it? We're like like a, a, a Formula One car well. that's like a got a dodgy tire. Um, I've got a question of the week, which I'll do very, very quickly. This is from Venus underscore Bloom on Twitter, who I believe offered her services as Madam Whiplash a few weeks ago. another fangirl. Yeah. Um, (laughs) In a different sense. uh, Who asked us a question, and this is relevant to what Julie was talking about of conferences. Is there a good resource for conferences, for finding out when conferences are on, where they are, how to sign up for them and stuff like that? So I I did a bit of digging. Uh, Probably the best one in the UK is the Writers Guild, and they're on Twitter, at the Writers Guild, And they're actually just scrolling through their Twitter feed. They're a brilliant resource for all sorts of things. And it's not just conferences now. There are, there are webinars and competitions and all sorts of stuff. The, in the US and North America, uh, their equivalent, I guess, is the Authors Guild. And again, they're on Twitter, which is at Authors Guild. So I think if you follow those folks on Twitter, you'll get a very good idea because uh, they retweet people as well. You get a very good idea of what's happening and when. I would also suggest you start looking locally as well. So, uh, you know, one I follow the Devon writers on Twitter simply because they're a very funny Twitter account, but they, you know, they also go on about, you know, writers locally to them, which is nowhere near me, but it's always interesting to see yeah. that there's, 
there's always something local going on. So well, for uh, people in North America, actually, there's there's one of the most highly regarded conferences over here um, is in Canada in Vancouver, and it's called the Surrey in Surrey Writers International Conference, and they have some huge names. It's towards the end of the year, November time. Um, if anyone from that conference is listening, and you would like me to pop along and uh, do a piece <laughs> on bestseller experiment, I'll be very happy to. Uh, it's just, really just, confusing for me because I live in Surrey in the UK, and it's nowhere near there. Oh, I know, and it's a very different Surrey to the Surrey in the UK, which is where Eric yeah. Clapton and Phil Collins live in this rolling hill. Surrey in Vancouver is is a bit more. Uh, uh, industrial, should we say, or maybe? Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> it's a good. It's a good conference. Diana Gabadon. Uh, she's there every year. She does uh, blue pens and, and conference notes, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so that's a good conference to go to as well, and it's easy to get to because it's in. You know, if you're in Seattle or the Northwest, it's just across the border as well. But if there's any other conferences people have been to and they like, let us know on our Facebook account because I think it's good to share. Because uh, I think conferences can be very inspiring. I always know people who come back from conferences and they're just come. Shannon, actually, one of our many guests, she says that the you know the conferences were very uh, much part of her growth as an author. She would meet lots of new authors there, um, get some great feedback, and always pumped up. So if you're feeling a bit kind of down, I mean, that's hopefully what the podcast is helping to kind of inspire you a bit. But if you if you want a kind of injection on steroids, a conference is always a great idea. Yeah, I, I, I will heartily, I know I'm biased, but I will heartily recommend the writer's part of the Galantz Fest, which is coming in November. Yeah, you get absolutely. to chat to people like Joanne Harris, Joe Abercrombie. I think Joe Hill is coming over for that as well. Mm, they haven't announced mm. all the names yet, but there will be some big authors. And just spending, you, you get to listen to them talking about their writing technique. You actually, there will be a session where you get to pitch your book to them and talk ideas uh, with them. It's pure gold absolute gold so the tickets go really quickly so uh so go follow gallants online i'll put some links on facebook again they're, they're there already but i'll, I'll put them up again um, and it is, is a really good life and I, I should be there if i'm not crying into my into my keyboard <laughs> absolutely yeah well we'll see what happens there now we have a competition to announce mark we have oh amazing we had an amazing competition uh, where Shannon Mayer was uh, uh, kindly given us the first set of books from her trilogy that she had done. Well, actually, it was more than a trilogy. It started out as a trilogy, but it became a big series. And the competition has been running. Thank you for everyone who has been entering. This is the first Shannon Mayer competition. We still have a second Shannon Mayer competition running, folks. So if you listen to this, um, pop along to the website, click on the win button. You'll see all the competitions we've got running. Um, but we are going to announce the winner of the first Shannon Mayer competition. So a little drum roll. Hang on, hang on. I can do this. I can do this. Hang on. Oh, hang can on. you? I, I got What have you got? Have you got like a drum kit in there or something? That is hey. awesome. And the winner is Shelley Butcher. Hey. So Shelley, congratulations. Those well books done, will be winging their way to you. And uh, yes, if you're interested in the other competitions we've got, there's lots of great competitions. Do go along to the website. But congratulations, Shelley. And thank you again to everyone who's entered. Sorry if you didn't win this time, but there'll be more good ones on their way as well. Cool. How did, you do, how did you do that noise? That was amazing. Was that just with like a two-p piece or something? No, no. So I found it on YouTube. Oh, while, you, while you were yakking away, I googled drum roll noise. So <laughs> this is awesome. This is professionality at its best. I love it. 
This is brilliant. Uh, so please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Thank you so much. Everyone has been reviewing us on iTunes recently. It's much, much appreciated. Uh, we're on Facebook at Bestseller Experiment, Twitter at Bestseller XP, Instagram. We're really taking off on Instagram, actually. Lots of interactivity on Instagram there, and lots of pretty pictures on Pinterest too. Excellent stuff. And I just would like to say thank you to Julie Cohn, our incredible guest this week. Mm. And one thing you said, Julie, if you're listening, hopefully you are, uh, which really inspired me is that idea about fear that you can't control. And that's what the one minute motivation is going to be about this week, because it is so important as anyone goes into this journey, you've got to realize that there is going to be fear. There's going to be this thing called writer's block, even though actually our friends um, Mr. Huckabee and Osler said, there's no such thing as writer's block. Don't define it as writer's block. But I, I, you know, you have to look into the fact that there is fear of things not turning out how you want them to with your book. Yeah. And, and I just want everyone to go away this week thinking about what are the stuff that they can just drop from their fear list? Because the stuff that we can't control, if we worry about it and we drag it around with us, it's like carrying a huge sack full of rocks. And believe me, as writers, we've got enough of a sack to carry around. We don't need yeah. anything else. Damn so look right. at that list. Write down the crap that is, is, is dragging you down that you can't control. And I'll be asking myself and Mark to remind me of all this in a couple of months' time when we actually go to publish <laughs> our book. Because <laughs> I could probably do with that advice right then. But yeah. Go for it, people. Don't fear the, feel the fear and do it anyway, I think the book title is, isn't it? So, it is um, indeed, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Just yeah. go for it and um, know that everyone experiences it. You're not alone. That's true. Very, very true. Wise words. Right. I think that'll do us, won't it? I think it certainly will. So thank you so much. Don't forget to come to the site to download The Vault of Gold. Yes. The incredible uh, book which is being uh, written as we go through this podcast. It won't be free forever, but it is absolutely huge. There's so much amazing advice. Mark uh, diligently goes through and, and transcribes every single interview we do. And it is absolutely brilliant. Honestly, if you haven't got your copy yet, you must get it. Do not miss out on this. It's not going to be on the website forever. So please, please get to bestsellerexperiment.com. Pop, pop your name into the email uh, box there and you will get your PDF or pub version that you can read on Kindle, etc. And uh, it'll be yours uh, to keep. So that's our gift to you. Lovely. We've got a very interesting set of guests next week. Oh, next there's week is be, brilliant. There's going to be lots of contracts and legal stuff flying around. So make sure you check in to make sure see if we actually get sued or not. There's a little clue. <laughs> so Mark, yes. it's so great having you on the show again. Sorry about not being around last week, uh, but it was great meeting Mr. State. I actually got to have a pint with my old friend. Yes. So, you know, silver lining, right? Silver yeah, lining. Yeah, it was yeah, absolutely yeah. brilliant. But uh, here we are, back in back in many miles apart to keep the distance, which is probably quite healthy for both of us. <laughs> so, so it's a goodbye from Mark One and a goodbye from Mark Two. Bye bye. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.